Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast, brought to you by Workman Forensics. Welcome to the Investigation Game Podcast. I'm Leah Wheatholter, CEO of Workman Forensics in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Joining me today are Sina Gaznavi and Justin Williams. They're both comedians and hosts of the podcast Fraudsters. It's on Spotify, and it's an hour-long comedic true crime episode and miniseries on all kinds of frauds like Barry Minko and Kevin Trudeau. Cena is a producer, non-practicing lawyer, and Justin is a professor of history at the City University of New York. Thank you for joining me today, Cena and Justin. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. This is awesome. Well, today we're going to discuss your most recent episodes about Enron, but before we get started... I'm really curious, what inspired the two of you to create a podcast about frauds and fraudsters? Uh, Justin, you want me to take that? You want to take yeah, that? you should take that one. <laughs> uh, you know, I was actually reading a story in Bloomberg about the cannabis bubble that someone was saying is happening right now. And they said that it was an absurd thing. There's a lot of fraud. People are making things up almost like the 90s when someone said that they cured AIDS and the company was called Uniprime, and the stock price jumped 1,200%. And mm-hmm. I, re- I saw that line, and I said, what? What? That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. How, why is this not more well-known? And I looked it up, and I looked into it, and then it was all almost one of those things where once you see a blue car, then all you see are blue cars. And all I saw was fraud after that, and finding out that someone had actually said they cured AIDS and had gotten far enough to get a publicly traded company to share that via a bunch of press releases. And then their stock price did jump 1,200%. It only lasted a month and they did get dinged, but they didn't go to jail or anything like that. I mean, it was just it's just a very, <laughs> very nice letter from the SEC. Um, but yeah, so we were, were uh, that's like, that was like the impetus of the show. And then our, our buddies are at the last podcast network. I was talking to them about it and they were like, why don't you just do the show with us? And so uh, Justin and I have been uh, kind of like partners in hosting on live radio for a long time now. And so it was like, you know, the easiest decision ever to tag team this thing again. Yeah, awesome. And like really good timing too, I feel like because of all the GameStop stuff and Wall Street bets. And I just feel like more people are paying attention to these types of things, especially the types of frauds that you seem to be covering on your podcast. So really, really great timing, I think. Yeah, the thesis of the show is like, um, you know, uh, have you taken advantage of vulnerable people financially? If so, Mm -hmm. then you're a fraudster that's going to end up on our show. Yeah, nice. I like it. You know, one of my favorite cases that I got to work uh, when I was working with the FBI as a student was on a pump and dump scheme. And I just still find that one like so interesting, you know, that all of this fake marketing went out and it was just in those penny stocks, right? So all this fake marketing goes out and then all these people invest and then and it was an attorney, an accountant, a marketer and something else. And then now we're seeing it in like um, conservation easements, like trying to sell like really wealthy people on, um, you know, hey, you can have this conservation easement and have this tax shelter and all this stuff. So like really educated professionals and people that are supposed to have these professional ethics are now, you know, kind of running. To me, it feels the same as a pump and dump that because you've got all those same type of people. Um, and anyway, so. That's are one you of my fascinating. You're a professional fraud examiner. Are you ever surprised by any of these things anymore? No. no. I've I worked so What's the worst scam you've ever seen where like even though, you know, you can see how like where you're just like, oh, man, I really can't believe anybody fell for this one. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, 
they're like the most simple. And I think this is what a lot of fraud examiners actually investigate are just embezzlements within small businesses or within estates and trusts. I mean, it's just that element of trust that just blinds somebody. Um, and then, you know, this person's been working with them for however many years. The ACFE says you're the, like the life of a occupational fraud scheme is like 18 months usually. No, mine are like four, five, 10 years. Like, uh, you know, so you're in the like millions of dollars of losses to these small companies or even to like estates and trusts. I mean, it just happens over a long time. So that's the thing we've noticed in the show too, is how long some of these fraudsters, like even like a Jim Baker, right. Uh, how long they've been able to put up the con for where it's, it's almost like it's happening for so long that reality isn't reality anymore. It's their reality that they've created and to actually attack them and say that what they're doing is fraudulent is, is truly an attack. We are attacking who they are and everything everything they they stand for almost. Yeah. Have, have you guys um, like looked at the ACFE's fraud triangle or like they are the ones that talk about it the most. But, the old you know, fraud triangle. Yeah. So like, I, think, I think that it's possible. And I've never really talked about this with anybody. But the longer a fraud scheme goes on, I think the more like solid that rationalization piece becomes. So then it can like become part of this person's identity and, you know, like, like, well, this is just who I am. There's a, a funny reminds me of Barry Minko. The ZZZ best guy. And one of the things he would do when he was running whatever variety of Ponzi scheme he was running uh, is he would get cash out and he'd, he'd show a thick wad of cash and break people off a, like a few bills of a hundred dollar bills or whatever. And people would be happy and he would placate people all the time. So a stack of money is, uh, is goes a long way, but it's not the nineties anymore. So I can't like show people a Venmo balance because that's like real money. So the style of your podcast, what is that style? Who is your audience and what are the types of frauds that you've covered? You, you've mentioned a couple. Uh, so I think where uh, edutainment or infotainment, Cena has a lot of the information, like a lot of uh, you know legal cases, a lot of information. I mostly do jokes and bad impressions. That's what I add to the show. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. And our audience are, are mainly like that 18 to, you know, 30 year old, uh, group. Uh, it's a lot of people uh, actually, you know, oddly enough, that's like the general demographic, you know, it's like skews male, like probably 60, 40 male, female for our show, maybe like 65, 35. But what's really fun is like the number of what I personally love is the number of people like yourself or people that are in like, uh, high intellectual positions, right? Either they're accounting students or they're students of, of fraud of some kind, or we just got a professor of government that emailed the other day with stuff and they're sending us uh, tips and everything like that. So we're really happy that like people that are studying this stuff, um, uh, you know, are listening to the show because it, it definitely is nice to hear, especially given the amount of research we do when someone <laughs> that knows what they're talking about uh, emails and they say they like the show. Yeah. I, I heard at the end of, uh, one of the ones I was listening to the text number, like that you can text tips to you or whatever. And I thought, Oh, that's such a good idea. Do you get response that way? I mean, do people send you tips? Hundreds. So many. It's like, so I, you know, there's every time you think you've got a good handle of the number of frauds that are out there, there's just hundreds and hundreds and thousands of more that are out there. And these are just the ones that people see in their newsfeed. We're not talking about like the small town ones that never really even make it past their local paper. 
So there's mm-hmm. always that whole vertical as well here that we have. A yeah. So you mentioned your research. What is that research process when you've decided to cover a fraud? Because for me, it's like my cases that I'm working. So I'm always curious how someone who's not working in this field, like what's your process to get that? And you guys have some great clips that you um, also include in your show. So, yeah. So basically we start off with, um, you know, I, I mapped out, we map out the season and we think about what episodes would flow well into the next and what kind of like arc we want to have for the season. How do we want to start? How do we want to like, just like we would do in a stand-up set, right? How do you open? How do you sustain? And how do you close? And so that's why Enron is a four-part series that we're closing on because we feel like they were like the pinnacle of frauds for at least our season one, right? Uh, and we, we feel like we were able to give a little bit of a different angle. So we, we kind of consume whatever media is out there already. So documentaries, articles, books, and that kind of thing. And then we try to find like, what haven't people looked at? What haven't people talked about? And so we try to take that as like a through line for our show. And then we go into like a pretty robust LexisNexis legal search of like case law and stuff. I just got a legal intern this this last year, so it helped me out a lot, not having to read the cases and stuff. Uh, brought me back to law school, which was not a good experience. Uh, then um, we also do like biographical research. So we want to know who they are. One of my favorite things to do is to like basically go in Lexus and go down a rabbit hole of what companies were they the corporate officer of? What company did they is that connected to? And where is that? If they have a real estate holding. How much is that real estate worth right now? And where is it? When did they buy that real estate? Was it at the peak of the fraud that they had or was it afterwards? You know, so there's all those little details that you can start pulling together. And then, of course, the YouTube clips are like, you know, they're gems because people, all these fraudsters, they just end up always saying the stupidest stuff. Yeah. awesome. And then I go through all of that research and all that meticulous planning. And then I see what pop culture references or song parodies I can cram into it. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. That is just a lot between both of you. I mean, to be able to plan that out. Oh, my goodness. I think of who do I want to have on the show this year? And then I just write some questions and interview them. So that is like some intense planning. Exactly. And then a lot of times we have to like explain a complex topic because the people that are listening to our show, I mean, some of them are people that study in the field and everything, but most, if not the vast majority have never heard of some of these financial kind of instruments or some of the types of schemes and stuff. So you really have to break it down because we're all part of the same system and we're all potential future victims, right? So knowing how these things work and being able to explain that in a digestible way over a podcast while your co-host is trying to do a song parody is a challenge at times. (laughs) (laughs) I would think so. Oh my gosh. Okay. We're going to take a real quick break. We'll be right back. At Workman Forensics, we're your modern day Sherlock Holmes. The team at Workman Forensics follows patterns to find money through forensic accounting and fraud investigation services. Using our data sleuth process, we build client cases telling the story of what actually happened. This process serves clients in the best way, whether they are going through a divorce, a partnership dispute, an estate and trust dispute, or a fraud investigation. So what is data sleuthing? Well, after serving clients in this best way for 10 years, we are proud of our technological improvements, making our investigations work similar to that of a manufacturing process. By following a consistent investigative and internal process, our team addresses client concerns in a timely, responsive, and thorough manner. 
But don't worry, clients don't go through this process alone. We believe communication is vital to the success of an engagement. So each client is guided by a highly trained and specialized expert forensic accountant along the way. And because we think data sleuthing is the best way to investigate financial disputes, we work to train other professionals as well through our investigation games, guided interactive workshops, and our Be A Data Sleuth seminars. To learn more about any of these services or trainings, visit our website, workmanforensics.com. In fact, our website is full of resources for anyone looking to learn more about forensic accounting, fraud investigation, or our data sleuth process. This includes blog posts, free Excel downloads, more podcast episodes, and links to our YouTube channel. So if you're looking to get into the investigation industry, or if you've been an investigator for years, we know you'll find something helpful in our free resources. So visit our website, workmanforensics.com. All right, welcome back to my discussion with Sina and Justin. So in the most recent episodes that I listened to, you talk about Enron. And so like, what about Enron? I mean, other than I, I mean, it's just massive. I mean, it's massive. But what about Enron, like, stood out to you that made you want to cover it, especially in the four episodes? Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, it's the size of it. It's how notable it was. I didn't actually realize how far it went. I, like, I didn't realize that Blockbuster Video had managed to get entangled in all of this. Uh, that was my favorite part. That It's like, oh, even Blockbuster is in this. And they were claiming profits from Blockbuster, which I think is like, a huge warning sign that nobody really saw at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was wild. I had not heard that before. How did you find that? Uh, it's all over the, the materials. It's just one of those little details that people kind of gloss over. But like, if you're a millennial, I mean, like Blockbuster was your childhood. And like yeah. for us, like not rewinding and not getting the videos back and then thinking that this company was ever going to be successful, that like, you know, the seventh largest company in America would would get into business with them. And it's just too funny for us not to cover. I mean, we didn't intend on doing three parts, but the Blockbuster thing was too funny. It's too insane that they were they they claimed, I think it was fifty three billion dollars of profits from the company that charges you when you don't rewind. And so <laughs> videos. it makes zero sense. You know, uh, so that that for us, it, it was just too funny. And I think the other thing, too, is Enron's one of the one of the reasons why we call the show fraudsters, uh, because I don't like it when we just talk about the company. We should be talking always about the people because the company allows us to get a separation from the fraud and how pernicious it is, because these are humans committing crimes morally despicable crimes against other humans, like causing the blackouts in California by taking energy out and selling it back at thousands of percent higher than what the normal rate of rate is, is like a sociological experiment in evil. And that, that to me is, is why we want to focus on the people because, you know, if you look at the financial collapse, right, it's just this abstract feeling of what happened. We know we have AIG, we have Lehman, who are, I think uh, Justin in the beginning of the season actually had a great joke of who are the Lehman bros? And I think that is like a really important concept is who is behind all of these crimes. And we need to know that these are people, Jeff Skilling, Kenneth Lay, Andy Fastow, Richard Causey, like all of these people are guilty and they're all, we don't care. We just say Enron and we keep it moving. I think that's, that's the part that uh, motivates us to talk about. Yeah, I definitely noticed how you did go into a lot of the 
leaders like you just listed, like all of their backgrounds and just kind of strange stuff about them, um, like from college or whatever. Uh, because yeah, you're right. And, and you mentioned the blackouts too. Uh, so my family's from Texas, I'm in Oklahoma, but originally from Texas. So my parents were without my parents and my grandma were without electricity, you know, during the ice storm, uh, or snowstorm and everything just what a couple months ago now, whatever a month ago. And I could not help but think of the Enron case when all of that was happening. Now, I don't know that that was like actually happening, but it's just so weird. And knowing about the blackouts and how they were doing that, I was like, mm. anyway. So my mom thinks I need to like go investigate for, you know, Texas or whatever. Yeah, the <laughs> funny thing is it's like, go ahead, Justin, sorry. Oh, uh, yeah. I did, they're not the exact same case, but they do have one word that's actually at the heart of both of them. It's deregulation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you're right. And even yeah. on that point, it's like, listen, we're not ones to say like government's not filled with idiots. I mean, the government is like filled with idiots. A lot of these things are not well run. But at the same time, when you like throw the idiots like chum in the water, the sharks are going to eat them all up. And so California should have gotten the opportunity to get their, can we swear here? <laughs> and they, they could have helped out. Lives could have been saved if they just would have moved at, at a speed that's a little bit faster than the snail space that they were moving at or not allowed like these corrupt special interest groups to come in and sway them so easily. What did you know about the case prior to your research? Did you know a lot? Only, um, I only knew mark to market. And I knew like this vague thing that like, okay, they said they had profits before uh, or they overinflated profits. That's all I actually knew. I didn't really know the nuances if, if mark to market is nuanced, but it is just, which is just, if you have a 20 year deal, you can book all of the process, profits for that deal the, the day you sign, which is, I, you know, Accountants did this. They made this. They thought this was a good idea. Do you know why it's a good? I don't know when it's a good idea to use it. No, I mean, you know, I like I'm trying to think back because what was the time range? I mean, I think this was before I was in college, just before I was in college, maybe. So a lot of things had changed by the time I was studying accounting. So going back and listening to podcasts or, you know, reading things about Enron, it's like the words don't even make sense anymore, you know, because it's like, how was this ever a thing? And that it was okay, because we were just talking today about how the, in, the intention behind financial statements is that you're communicating uh, your revenues and expenses in a timely fashion. So to, to take like profits you haven't even earned yet and put it on your financial statements is just, I mean, it just defeats the whole purpose of financial statements in my mind. But I, but I can't like go, I wasn't in the profession when this was going down to know how that would be considered okay. Just, uh, oh, yeah. Sorry, I feel like we're on the show. So. I, knew, I, knew, I knew uh Enron was in Texas because I, uh, I I used to live in Texas, and I lived in Texas when uh, George W. Bush was governor. And I remember okay. that he had extremely close ties to Enron. Um, so I remember so – I, that's, that's what I remember. And also I also have uh, friends that work in the oil and gas industry uh, in Houston, so <laughs> – so that's how I heard of Enron. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, other than like going to school and you hear about it in accounting or whatever, a little after it happened, I didn't really know a whole lot till honestly more recently when I started studying it too. Um, what are some of those other things that you maybe found in your research that you hadn't heard anywhere else? Uh, for Enron or for other? Yeah, for Enron, like any of the players or. Um, well, the, the blockbuster thing was was 
uh, you know, probably the most joyful, saddest discovery. And, you know, what's funny about the Blockbuster thing, too, is that Blockbuster was the risk averse one in this situation. They were the ones that were hesitant uh, of the deal going forward with Blockbuster at that time. I think must have started seeing the writing on the wall that like things were not going well for their <laughs> terrible business model. Um, and that, you know, uh, that they just wanted to get, they got paid basically to do the deal with Enron. And Ken Lay was the one who was going to say, I'll deal with the the, the studios. Don't worry about it, which is beautiful. Um, I think the other parts of Enron um, that we discovered was how many Ivy League educated geniuses uh, not only supported the, you know, ratings of of like investor rating, investor grade ratings of Enron, but how everyone was was in on it. Right. And they didn't see that their culture that was there, uh, the rank and yank. We actually didn't talk too much about this, but every quarter, I think five, the bottom five percent performers um, were fired immediately. And there was a committee that, that basically rated you. And if you were in that bottom five, no matter what. And so the whole culture was, what have you done for Enron recently? And when you do that, you're, you're not going to get honest people. People aren't going to care about being honest. People got to eat. They got to keep their jobs. So it's like, I don't even, you know, you can blame the people that were doing some of these things to a certain degree, but how much can you blame when someone's got a kid at home or they got like a sick family member they got to take care of. Sure, you want me to take energy out of one state and put it back into them and sell it so I can keep my job? Yeah, I don't. Of course, they're going to do these things. And that's like the kind of like the victimization that that we could start looking at in almost like a different lens. And like the Jeff Skillings of the world are too callous to see that what they were doing was wrong. Even today, Jeff Skilling doesn't think he really did anything wrong. He's just like he's OK with it. You know what I mean? And I, I um, when I left Texas, I went to um, I moved to Missouri and I went to a school in Columbia, Missouri, where the University of Missouri is. So I was happy to find out about Kenneth Lay's uh, links uh, to Missouri, in particular, why it was so controversial that they named the chair of economics after him. Um, and, and then there was a huge controversy about that as Enron was on trial in like 2008. It's like, are they still going to keep the Kenneth Lay chair in economics? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Wow. So since you've covered so many fraud schemes in this first season, um, are there any similarities that stand out to you amongst the players per- perpetrating these frauds? Uh, re- reality distortion field, for sure. Yeah. That is just, it's unreal. Just, uh, just a distorted reality. And I think we've seen that. And this is before the internet. Like this is before social media, you know, we, we, we find it easy to be in our own realities now with like, you know, small little metaverses that we can all live in and forever not think of it. This is like the nineties, the eighties, the seventies. This is, this is part of, this is the human condition that has a problem. Right. Um, so that, that to me, I think is almost universally because it goes back to that rationalization point where that is always the as part of the fraud triangle, that is the craziest part, you know, and really all you need is like uh, a sassy aunt or a good friend to shake you out of something like that and tell you that you're being crazy. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. The, the use of they, I mean, that's part of the reality distortion. It's always they, they're always like, they don't want you to know, or they, they're part of them or, you know, and every single one of them does that no matter what the con is, is convincing you 
that there's a they out to get the group that they're kind of like, you know, grooming you to be a part of. So the they is like that exterior group. Yeah. It's the way you get people to, you know, like the way cults and other things work to, you know, stop listening to like their friends and family and experts (laughs) because they're all part of the conspiracy, right? They're they. They don't want you to have this good thing that the fraudster is offering. Yeah, you're right. There's a, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal and one of our local fraud examiners covered it on the show about um, like kind of a robocall scam. And so, you know, this person likely not even in the States, you know, but controlling this lady so much um, and like getting all this, just extorting her for all this money. And she had completely like withdrawn from her family. I mean, that's that same thing, kind of like just grooming to uh, remove anyone who would say, you know, this it doesn't sound quite right. So, yeah, that's interesting. That's a great point. Um, I think one of the interesting things to me about the Enron case, too, was that not only was there this huge fraud going on, but Fastow and like him skimming off the top, like in addition oh, yeah. to everything else. Right. We could even, I was, I kept seeing that stuff and I was like, wait a minute, how is he, he's just taking the money. It's not even like a, a thing. We didn't actually talk too much about that. I wish we did because Andy Fasta, I mean, I think I got lost in the corporate structures and trying to explain raptors and special purpose entities and stuff like that. Uh, you can really get in the weeds, but really it's just, you know, one shell game after another. And he got his wife involved and they were just skimming money. They were already making millions of dollars, millions of dollars, and yeah. I just I wouldn't oh, even yeah. know. Oh, you 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 uh, you lagged a little bit. I stopped talking immediately. Oh, sorry. Go for it. I'll right. stop. Oh, oh, I was just gonna say, um, yeah, that's another thing they have in common. They can't stop. Yeah, they can't like it's like it's always theft on top of theft, or like the thefts get bigger and bolder and more outrageous when they're they're never content to just like steal just like a lot of money. <laughs> Has anyone told you guys about Nathan Mueller? Have y'all run across his story? Mm-hmm. I think you, uh, my listeners are going to be like, that's not how much money he stole, but I think it's around $30 million from ING. Maybe don't quote me on that because I'm doing this off the cuff. I don't have notes. Okay. But uh, he stole $30 million, but originally he was just going to steal. He kind of found a loophole and he was like a CPA and part of their accounting and whatever. And so he found this like loophole where he could, siphon off some money to like pay some bills that he had, but then he saw how easy it was. And so he kept stealing and then he needed a reason to like justify why he had all this extra money. So then he started gambling, but like he wasn't actually a gambler. So then he got addicted to gambling and then it just like this snowball effect. Anyway, it's fascinating. He, he shares his story a lot. It's all the same. It's all the thrill. It's the thrill of stealing, the thrill of gambling. Yeah. I mean, I love playing craps, but at the same time, I don't know if I could spend more than a few hundred bucks. I mean, that's like terrifying to just start losing that much cash. I got student loans. I can't. <laughs> right. Right. Tony Soprano had a bad gambling habit as well. Yeah. We all know what happened to him. Well, we, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. We don't know what happened. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Dude, Justin did spoil Sopranos on the show, actually, and we got a, a, a listener that was in the middle of watching it in the pandemic with his wife and he emailed and he, he was so angry with us. He was like, I really love your show, but I cannot believe you just ruined this entire series for me. Oh my gosh. I waited 20 years. That's statue yeah, of limitations. I think, what are you gonna right do? I mean, what, come on. Yeah. 
The odds of that, man. Somebody got mad at me for spoiling Titanic. Yeah. This is a different uh, one. Oh, no, the, the boat, no, the boat sinks. <laughs> okay, that's okay, sorry. Oh my gosh. Um well, okay, so before we wrap up, I'd like to ask each of you. Um, if there's a fraud that you've covered, that's just a story you'll never forget. And maybe it's like a piece of it since you guys dive into so much of these, but like a piece of a story or a story, a, a piece of a case that you've covered that you'll never forget. For me, it'd be Barry Minko. Uh, the fact that he took a fake carpet cleaning stock scam um, and then he goes to jail <laughs> and pretends that he's a born again Christian in order to become a head of a church, steals from that church in order to fund a film where he plays himself uh, in a, in like an autobiographical film and he's paying people with all stolen money on the set. And he manages to get James Caan, Mark Hamill, uh, Talia Shire, I think is in it. Uh, he managed to get all these people and, but he plays himself for the second half and it's absolutely awful, but it's all, I mean, I think it's the greatest con ever. It's a con that pays for part of the con that also advances the con. I think it's the I think it's the greatest yes. thing. And it actually had James Khan in it. <laughs> <laughs> He's very meta. Yeah. Wow. Okay, I didn't know that. So obviously I haven't listened to that episode yet. You should watch oh, the yeah, movie Con watch the movie Con Man. It's it's horrible. I don't um, know. We we play a couple of clips. We we play I think what you need to hear from that movie. That's but the sufficient. movie is absurdly <laughs> bad. I mean, knowing how the movie was produced based on uh, doing the the episodes and then watching that movie is unreal. I mean the, these. I mean Hollywood's its own fraud and it's in and of itself. But the, <laughs> I mean, they're like saints compared to Barry Minko. Uh, I guess the uh, the one that I uh, that jumps out to me um, is the the Hitler diaries. Someone created fake diaries and said they were Hitler's, and then. They had they wanted to sell them. No one they couldn't sell. They couldn't verify them, or they kind of verified them. But um, the um, and they couldn't sell them. And when they wanted to bring them to America, uh, the person that ended up buying them to distribute them was Rupert Murdoch. And to, <laughs> and to yeah. realize that he was the one that closed the final deal to bring in fake. And then after they released them and everything. You know, they found out that they were fake and he was like, nah, it's okay. And it's like, couldn't we have seen the literal Nazi f red flag? They went up at that time that this was going to be a problem with this man. But, you know, to each his own. It's a free country. Wow. Uh, that actually reminds me of the show, The Con, that's on ABC right now. And they had one about a guy that was, um, I think he was like kind of in Hollywood, like selling uh, like all of this really old expensive wine. But it was just that he was like making copy, like making his own wine and just reusing the expensive bottles and stuff. Oh, yeah. There's a doc on uh, that guy. Yeah. And um, it was a Coke. Uh, Bill Coke? Is that the? Oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the Coke brothers. Like, he got. Yeah, he got one scared. of the Coke brothers is the one that like decided I'm going to like take this guy down because he had tons of bottles that had been like created, recreated by this guy. He spent like, I think like $150,000 or more on just the fake bottles. He was just pouring wine and making blends or whatever. And people were like, this is amazing. And he just knew yeah. how to talk and sell it, which is, you know, you're still getting drunk. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> 
And speaking of those, uh, you know, how these guys like to create these videos and stuff, he like had this film crew with him, the, the con artist did. And so like, as I'm watching the documentary with my husband the other night, I'm like, oh, he said that. Like he actually said what his con was like on this video, but everybody just thought he was like being funny. But he actually, I mean, he said it. Just, he looked at the camera. He's like, it's not like I'm just putting Boone's Farm into Vinci's fridge bottles. Yeah. Anyway, well, Cena, Justin, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. And if any of our listeners would like to connect with you or learn more about your podcast, what's the best way to do so? Uh, you can follow us on uh, Fraudsters LPN and on, on social media. You can find us on Spotify only right now for the show. Uh, we're at Fraudsters. And of course, you could send us tips at our tip line. 412-285-1255. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you, Leah.